1: It's the Wonky Show. We're talking major new announcements about how universities are going to be regulated in England, a new TEF, and the use of non-disclosure agreements. It's all coming up. Students, if we begin to uh,
0: move students in in Ireland into the space where they feel like they are purely consumers, that they are purely consumers in in a way, the thing that happened inside uh, inside England, then we will undoubtedly get to that space and it'll be politically irresistible uh, to, to bring these kinds of regulations into place.
1: Welcome to The Walkie Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us set a baseline of quality for HE Policy this week, we have three fabulous guests. In a very cold Oxfordshire, it's Mary Curnock-Cook, Chair of the Student Futures Commission and other things. Uh, Mary, your highlight of the week, please.
2: Oh, well, my highlight was the wolf moon on Monday. It was just so fantastic. And later that night, it was so bright. It felt like somebody left the spotlights on outside. It actually cast moon shadows in my house. It was really lovely. But also, um, we had a brilliant meeting of the Student Futures Commission um, on Monday this week. And we're nearly there for what I think is going to be an absolutely cracking final report to be launched at the Secret Life of Students. Uh, my commissioners are just so fab.
1: Uh, in a also very cold Dublin, it's Ben Archibald, General Manager of the Union of Students in Ireland. Ben, your highlight for the week, please. Oh, my, my primary highlight of the week has to be uh, that I have evidence that I
0: came up with the joke that Keir Starmer used to great effect at Prime Minister's Question Time a week before he did, so there's that. The second one I have to say is, we confirmed that our, well assuming we don't have a new variant that stops everything, that our National Congress is going to go ahead in person for the first time in like three years, so we're happy.
1: And from Team Wonky, somewhere on the M5 information superhighway, it's David Kernahan or DKTME. You DK, your highlight of the week.
3: Uh, well, there's a new Nepalese restaurant in the little town in Gloucestershire where I live that we never mention. Um, I popped in last night and I ended up being interviewed by BBC Radio Gloucestershire about it so I mean that'll be on Sunday night.
1: So we start the week with a major new announcement from OFS about uh, how it's going to regulate universities or a consultation about uh, how it's going to apply its uh, regulatory powers. Mary uh, where do we start?
2: Oh Well, this has its roots in why the Office for Students, the OFS, was set up in the first place and the Higher Education and Research Act, and principally this main B3 condition of registration. Um, I did also reflect that perhaps it um, had uh, something to do with the ruling um, uh, where the Bloomsbury Institute won a case against the OFS based on them not being able to kind of enforce the B3 uh, conditions. Anyway, the headline of the press release is OFS sets out plans to crack down on poor quality courses. Um, uh, This is red meat, I guess, and I hope you like it on the raw side. (laughs) Um, That said, there's of course a a sort of underlying logic to what's being proposed and um, it goes something like this. Why should taxpayers pick up the tab for students who are perhaps underqualified to study on courses, which they then might not complete, or if they do, are not going to get them into highly enough paid jobs to be able to pay back their student loans. And then there's a sort of side dish of logic. um, And by the way, we shouldn't lower standards and expectations for students who come from challenging or minority backgrounds. And plus. These students would have been better off doing some technical courses that prepare them for an actual job, which the economy needs, uh, and in brackets, and which cost less to the taxpayer. Um, So, so far, so good. They want universities only to admit people who are likely to succeed and pay back their loans. Um, You might say, fair enough. But of course... When we get down to how they will do this, prepare yourself for, I think it's 117 pages of gruesome detail, um, which for universities mostly means a new and massive data collection exercise uh, and, of course, a threat of fines or deregistration or removal of loan funding from courses that don't meet the new thresholds when i say when i say gruesome detail uh, there's data cuts proposed for full time part time undergraduate postgraduate by age ethnicity etc 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 and all at individual course level um gosh what could possibly go wrong <laughs> actually my thoughts went immediately to the many universities that don't have modern data systems architecture in place and who will likely Uh, do this exercise via multiple, multiple spreadsheets. Um, But actually, my biggest worry is the intersection between well, what what the sector has been doing and has been encouraged to do for years to widen participation in higher education. Um, And, uh, you know, basically, there's been a sort of gentleman's agreement in place where universities admit lots of students from disadvantaged backgrounds Many at lower or contextual minimum entry thresholds, and then use the diversity of their student cohorts as a justification for poorer outcomes, and 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 that's the argument that got the Bloomsbury Institute off the hook in their legal case against the OFS. Um, and this is what the OFS and and indeed the Secretary of State want to stop. Um, it's It's a kind of logic fault isn't it, where universities have autonomy to admit whomever they want but then don't accept responsibility for some students dropping out or failing to to prosper um, It's pretty hard to see how this new regime won't set back widening participation in a big way, um, you know unless schools find a magic wand to wave over the attainment gap between rich and poor or universities. Find a way to, um, you know, to send Cinderella to the ball without leaving before midnight. Um, I think this is going to be a big problem. Uh, prf, sledgehammers and nuts come to mind, um, but given the size of this OFS sledgehammer and the impenetrability of the particular nut, I've have to say i've wondered again whether it might be easier to simply engineer some kind of university skin in the game of their own loan book but anyway hey ho there we go
1: yes well remind us dk uh just just why the idea of using outcomes to measure quality and and then not not benchmarking them are, are so controversial in the sector
3: the controversial thing becomes um um if you have a cohort made up of students from backgrounds that are By nature of their background, more likely not to complete their course, more likely uh, not to move away from their home area to enter a graduate uh, training scheme that leads uh, to a graduate job. Uh, then you are disadvantaged in these measures, even though you might be doing the hard lifting of leveling up that, uh, the government also seems keen to see universities, uh, do. And at the heart of these consultations, and there are a number of consultations as we'll come to, uh, is this, uh, conflict between the idea of leveling up and the idea of quality. Now, um, the, uh, animating animating uh, political philosophy of the uh, Boris Johnson administration has been something called cakeism, uh, the idea that you have your cake and you also eat your cake, um, which is um, a well-known uh, a tautology, but it's something that the Prime Minister has actually said. Uh, now, this, these proposals are a little like, uh, cakeism because on the one hand, you've got all the hard language about the proposed numerical threshold levels, um, and these are set in a l- a lot of uh, detail by um, uh, the level and the the mode of study across continuation, completion and uh, uh, progression. And as Mary says, you can also drill right down to individual subjects, individual groups of students and look at their performance. But if you look at the way they're actually going to regulate, and this is something that the OFS has made clear to me is that they will take contextual issues into account as they regulate so even if you're not actually at one of these benchmark levels although they're uh, actually now calling them numerical threshold levels it's still not a cut and dry deal that they're going to uh, cancel that particular group of courses there's the the second mythology in this is that they talk about this in terms of low quality courses that students shouldn't be on low quality courses that they don't complete that 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 um doesn't lead to any meaningful um benefit to those students if they do complete and i think a lot of people would honestly agree with that but uh the problem with that is that it assumes that we're talking about data at a course level. And as regular listeners will know, we don't get data at course level. We get data at best at a fairly high level of subject. They're talking car level two. So, th- so this apparatus, it doesn't actually spot low quality courses. It spots l- low quality areas of uh, provision. And i mean. This, of course, might prompt a um, um, a provider to go even deeper in their own data and to look at particular courses within that area that are not performing and uh, cut those courses proactively rather than um, risk having to explain themselves to the regulator. So that, in quite a large nutshell, is where the controversy lies as I see it.
1: Stepping back for a bit, I mean, Ben, you, you don't work in the sector in England, but you're a close observer of this. Just let me let me let me put it put it this way: um, you can see probably why uh, a lot of people in the sector here are going to be unhappy about this this direction of travel. But if a student is unlikely to graduate or unlikely to get a graduate job, is it not unreasonable to do something about that?
0: It's completely reasonable to do something about that, and I, I, I like the point that was made earlier. earlier that this is red meat, and, and listeners should be obviously aware of the the political situation uh, inside the Conservative Party and in the UK in general. They have been looking for something like this to you know right at this point. It's it's very convenient that it comes out this week. Students have to be protected from poor performing courses somebody who goes in um, and and takes decisions as they do at 16, 17 about how they're going to structure their AS and their A-levels towards getting getting into um, higher education and what course they're going to do, they should have sufficient information to let them know whether it's going to be a particular waste of time to study a particular subject in a particular college. Nobody's going to fundamentally disagree with that. But the problem, I suppose, is where we have pared down the higher education sector into being a purely economic driver and then completely ignoring um, the the initial basis of the university and the initial basis of the uh, kind of holistic and, and generalised learning that people should be able to study the thing that really motivates them because they themselves may elevate that learning through their, their, their own activity. If this results in a college looking at a particular area of study and saying, Oh that's going to make us look terrible let's dump it and then that happens across uh whole sectors of learning then uh, the widening participation agenda disappears and the the broadening of the kind of the the cultural and social value of of the, the college Uh, begins to end. So I I think from an Irish perspective with with knowledge of the UK system, I think this is a dangerous, potentially dangerous approach, but nobody's going to disagree with the idea of students being protected from consistently failing courses.
2: I was speaking to someone yesterday who's um, uh, delivering what you might call a sort of boot camp plus in the creative tech sector, And she was telling me that she has a lot of people signing up for a program, which, by the way, costs about £9,000 for a six, nine month course and paid for through an income sharing arrangement. Um, And she said that they had quite a few people coming on who were graduates from creative tech courses, stuff like gaming and so on. And she would hear from these people who said they'd gone to job interviews and had frankly been embarrassed by how little they knew and we're coming on this course because they wanted to get job ready. And, you know, if if what's being proposed fixes some of that, then, of course, it's a good thing. I think I'm more concerned about how they're going to do this. I, I, I just see, um, you know, huge numbers of data cuts, a lot of data cells with very small numbers in which will be statistically um, dodgy. And. Um, I wonder how in the context of the OFS, I think it's promised to cut 10% of its costs. And I just wonder how on earth they're going to have the capacity to undertake what feels like a, a, such an enormous exercise. Um, and I also worry about, you know, just unintended consequences. You know, if you have to, if you have to, um, correct a, fault in the system, which as Ben says, I think is there, um, albeit in small pockets, we hope. But if you have to crack it with such an enormous exercise, I think the the opportunity for unintended consequences is just huge. And um, yeah, I I don't feel, I feel comfortable about the aim of this, but I don't feel at all comfortable with the how it's going to be done bit of it
1: yeah and any West was on Twitter this morning. we're go- we're gonna need a bigger regulator
2: <laughs> I mean- it
3: does feel that way um the other thing that we need to m- remember here is that this direct use of uh data in um in higher education regulation, more so than ever before. It makes the definition of uh, data a very highly uh, politicized activity. A lot of the policy action in this set of consultations is in a delight called the uh, Consultation on Constructing Student Outcome and Experience Indicators, which is 195 pages. It's roughly as dry as it sounds. But you get into the definition of, okay, we're looking for graduates to have a positive destination. What is defined as a positive destination? And you learn in there that a positive destination includes any kind of further study. It doesn't matter what the level. So even if you're going into, as Mary uh, talks about, a training course that uh, picks up on the deficiencies of your um um, undergraduate course, then that is counted as a positive death, um, destination. There's lots of other odd wrinkles in the stuff around continuation. There's uh, two different methods of calculating continuation. I mean, not only one of them that's based on actual continuation across a single cohort. Um, but the big worry here is that the Office of Students has performed something of a land grab. It's taken on a lot of this definition work for the data that will underpin its regulation itself, rather than letting the existing mechanisms um, via HESA and across the four nations of the UK um, work uh, properly. So there is a sense here in which the Office for Students is um, changing quite radically the available data in order to make its system of regulation work rather than changing its system of regulation to fit the data that is actually um, reasonably available. And for smaller providers, for providers that might also Provide FE qualifications and return data via a completely different, um, and much more onerous system. This just adds substantially to the, um, burden. And it's this, these same people that are looking at the increase in their work through the increase in this uh, burden who are currently dealing with the slow and uncertain um, implementation of the data futures program and are looking down the barrel at the lifelong l- l- loan entitlement and the fact all of this will have to be changed again to deal with modular provision. These are the people that have the skills to respond to this 195-page consultation. And I just don't know what kind of firm, meaningful response to this incredibly complicated use of defi- um, data definitions to create policy the Office for Students are expecting to get.
1: I mean, there's a lot of material here on on numbers, um, as you say, DK, and enormous kind of piece of work to respond to it. But I mean, Mary, there's not, not a single word at all about why some students might drop out or uh, not get a, a decent job. I mean, have we just completely lost the plot here? Has this approach of basically just counting everything, but not developing any understanding about how to change things just, just, just made us all lose sight about what the, what the purpose of regulation is? I mean, and, and if you're right. You know is this the tipping point for the the sector to, to declare independence?
2: yeah no, I think that's a really um interesting point but uh, you know don't don't forget i think the threshold for full time undergraduate um meaningful employment or whatever they call it is um meaningful destinations is is sixty percent and and so you'd think well, allowing forty percent of them to not want to get a job or have a baby or you know whatever whatever the reasons are that people might not be doing that um to me seems um, not not unreasonable but actually talking about destinations you know I was thinking of a couple of things I think apprenticeships are graduate um degree apprenticeships are included as a as a cut in all of this and you're thinking well hang on if somebody drops out of an apprenticeship you know a main reason they might do that is they got fired from the job because it's actually an employment contract um, that they've undertaken or that you know the employer goes bust or something so you know what how do, how do you account for in apprenticeships when when it's something at the employment the employment contract between the student and and the employer and also i wondered whether you need a sort of rpi type index for graduate employment you know if you think back to the financial crash 2008 9 when graduate employment fell off a cliff or indeed you know the disruption that we've had through the the pandemic you know they're going to have to deploy some kind of indexation of graduate employment based on the availability of of jobs and, you know, the level of unemployment, etc, etc. So, you know, I'm just wondering if this is just escalating into something, you know, the more data you collect, the more you need to make it meaningful, and then the whole thing just spirals completely out of control. But, But don't get me wrong, I think the underlying aim of this you know, has has got a logic that um is appealing and is is right. I just think that this um massive data exercise is um I don't know it seems it seems um destined to go quite badly wrong. And and by the way, I think DK's points about, well, how's how's OFS going to do this? And why isn't HeSa doing it? And so you know, I think that's all interesting and worrying
1: um ben uh w- while we've got you because you know you made you made, a, you made a good case for the kind of political the, the political case for, for doing this in the round but i'm i'm interested to know whether um you know it's it's this line of thinking is essentially this this, this way of approaching regulation is kind of inevitable i mean um you've got he legislation being proposed in ireland right now could all this uh result in in your own he authority doing something like this
0: i i don't suspect that it will the the institutions here uh, every institution everywhere of course seeks to robustly assert its independence and its, its autonomy in ireland that is um that that goes to the end. For instance, I, I remember a time whenever I sat on the higher education authority, and uh, a particular a senior staff member had um, was superannuated by about three years. We pointed out this was unlawful, but that the college had the autonomy if it wished to to continue to break the law. Uh, these things, as a long time ago, I'm safe. Don't worry, uh, nobody's going to get sued for that. But the. The, there is an argument uh, in Ireland as well about, well, listen, what's the value of, of my, my course? Obviously, uh, here it's, it's cheaper to study. Uh, €3,000 is the, um, the cost of the free fees, registration fee for students per year. So it's a good bit cheaper than, than over there. But students, if we begin to uh, move students in, in Ireland into the space where they feel like they are purely consumers that they are purely consumers and in a way, they think that happened in, inside uh, inside England, then we will undoubtedly get to that space and it'll be politically irresistible uh, to, to bring these kinds of regulations into place.
1: So to get into any of the detail we've discussed about this topic, please go to wonky.com. We've got a whole wa- range of articles um, from uh, the team and lots of commentary from the sector coming over the coming days um, and lots of the detail to unravel over there. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
0: My name's Alex Blower, Access and Participation Manager for Arts University, Bournemouth, and this week I have been writing for Wonkey on the appointment of the new Director for Fair Access for the Office for Students, John Blake, the letter by Michelle Donnellan providing a steer on what the government believe access and participation work and policy should consist of, and discuss whether it's good, whether it's bad, or whether it's just a little bit ugly and confusing at the moment. I also provide quite a definitive answer from my own institutional perspective as creative higher education providers as whether or not we should be engaging in activities such as maths and English tutoring to raise attainment.
4: So give it a read. Hi, my name's Jonathan Grant and I run a small consultancy called Different Angles. This week on Wonky, I published a blog examining whether universities are civic washing... To do this I examined the gap between the rhetoric around civic engagement and what universities do in practice by looking at the 59 universities that had committed to developing a civic university agreement in 2019 and seeing whether they were paying a living wage to their lowest paid staff, largely cleaners and security staff. I found that there was a significant minority of these universities were not paying a living wage and were not accredited with the Living Wage Foundation, despite saying that they were civic institutions. I conclude by arguing that it is inexcusable that some universities claim to be civic, but are unwilling to support their local communities and paying a living wage. As I've argued in the New Power University, the local impact of universities occurs through the way they operate, as well as through their education and research missions.
1: Now the TEP is back. It lives, DK.
3: It lives, um, although it uh, now returns to its original name of the Teaching Excellence Framework. It's no longer called the Teaching Excellence and Student Outcomes Framework. Outcomes
1: are being done by another branch of professors, as we've discussed.
3: Well, the outcomes are still in the framework. It's just not called that. So that was a little bit of um, a nerdy point to start on. But for those just coming up to speed, the uh, Teaching Excellence Framework was originally proposed in the 2015 conservative manifesto, which was written by Joe Johnson. He then became, a uh, higher education minister, implemented it via a series of green and white papers, and it became the main point of discussion in parliament during the passage of the Higher Education and Research Act. Um, in essence, it's a way of, r- r- um, r- um, it's a way of rating the provision of um, universities at either a bronze, silver or gold level, all of which levels are um, above the baseline. And in the past, it did this via looking at a range of uh, benchmarked um, metrics, which means uh, metrics that are compensated to take account of the uh, makeup of a student body at a particular uh, provider. As time uh, progressed, uh, these were tweaked. There was the abortive trial of a subject level TEF, which was dropped because it was um, ridiculously bureaucratic. And then the last time the TEF ran w- was in 2019 because future iterations were waiting for the release of the PS review of TEF, which you'll remember happened in January of 2021. Um, the PS review uh recommended a number of changes, particularly removing the emphasis on indicators above everything else and paying a lot more accord to uh, the provider's own understanding and interpretation of the quality of its teaching. And in this new message, you'll see equal weighting uh, given to uh, metrics uh, drawn from the National Student Survey and from uh, the continuation and other outputs uh, data, and also from a statement taken uh, a statement provided by the university in question and also an optional submission from, um, university students that was, that would probably use the normal, uh, student, um, representation, uh, mechanisms in that, uh, uh, provider. Um, it's a big change. It puts TEF, uh, back on the agenda after a number of people, myself included, feeling that it might be gently dropped because nobody really cares about it. It's still there, it's still happening, and it is a teaching excellence framework once more.
2: The thing that caught my eye was that while we've still got bronze, silver, and gold, there's a new grade called Requires Improvement. Um, And I, I remember when that Requires Improvement grade came in for the Ofsted judgments, and I and I thought that was quite a good thing, actually. Um, and, you know, in the previous TEF, you, you either didn't get a TEF rating at all or you were bronze, silver and gold. And actually, I think Requires Improvement will, you know, will put a bit of grit in this oyster. Um, I think it's a good thing if it starts to help put teaching excellence on a on a par with research excellence in the kind of institutional dna
1: isn't the uh, part of the idea of a tef though, to, to kind of explain to students what you know help students make choices about where to go i mean what's your view about this mary does it does it does it help
2: well my feeling was that it, it never really had any cut through at the kind of student choice level um, and that's partly um, it, it's partly because it it was only going for a couple of couple of well i think there was only one exercise wasn't one rating exercise that was ever done um so i think if it if it if it embeds and starts being a thing that everybody does look for then yeah that probably is a, a good thing for for students um i seem to remember that the original tef was a initially sort of almost like a self diagnostic exercise wasn't it and ta- attached to potential tuition fee increases as far as i understand it that's that's no longer there's nothing to do with tuition fee increases in this, is there?
3: There's not, but the consultation does make clear that that possibility still exists in regulation. So it could potentially happen in the future. Although if we think about the potential oncoming orga review and all of the other bits of machinery that are floating about higher education at the moment, it does feel unlikely.
1: Um, ben, what's your, view, what's your view of the, 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 the TEF from, from, from another system?
0: So we in Ireland we we've um, adopted a there was a, a forum national forum for the enhancement of teaching and learning and we developed our national student engagement program alongside that to ensure that students and students views of how well they were taught and, and students views on on particularly excellent practice inside higher education would result then in, in awards internally to in order to encourage uh, and to encourage the. Um, the sector to take uh, advantage of of good and best practice. Uh, There hasn't been this kind of this traffic light approach here. I think broadly, if you're uh, going back to the point that I I made a little earlier, if students are provided with good, uh, students whenever they're in secondary school level are provided with good information about where it's likely that they're going to be taught well. Then that's going to give them an idea about what, uh, where they want to go and, and it'll give them uh, an opportunity to choose what's, what's best for them. That having been said, um, the, the idea of uh, needs improvement. I think if I'm studying in a particular uh, college and the course comes under assessment and it's anywhere other than gold, then I'm going to think that that needs improvement. And I think that everybody will have, everybody will kind of look uh, if it's properly advertised and if it's properly then relied upon in the literature that the colleges develop inside their prospectuses, then it stands a good chance of actually being a, a good thing for for improving um, improving teaching and improving the uh, concentration that the college has on teaching. Um, that having been said, whenever, if there's been kind of one exercise carried out and then we had COVID, I think that uh, anybody who relied on that for their, their choice choice college and now has been kind of studying at home for the last two years, before. it'll leave a rather bitter taste in their mouth. I think this speaks, though, to, to a basic a logic of collecting data and being prepared to present the data, but then not showing people or not providing for, for people to actually improve. It's essentially useless to tell somebody, well, the teaching in this location isn't isn't particularly good. We're still going to continue to fund them. There should be some method. There should be some uh, – it doesn't necessarily need to be centralised, but inside topic areas, some development of skills and methods to, to encourage and support uh, lecturers and teachers to, to become better. Otherwise,
1: what's the point? um well we're going to get into all of these issues a lot more at next month's secret life of students are then all about the student experience and rethinking it and my colleague and co-host jim is here to tell us a bit more about that
5: Uh, It's Jim from the team here, and very excited to say that in February, our event, The Secret Life of Students, is back. Uh, Now in its third year, it's all about how we rethink the student experience, bringing together experts, sector leaders and professionals, as well as student leaders and student senior managers to tackle difficult challenges and work together to transform higher education to better meet the needs of the next generation of students. This year, we're doing diversity differently, rethinking the outdated model of designing learning environments based on an imagined normal student and then applying sticking plaster interventions based on diverse student characteristics. Uh, We'll reflect on the findings of the UPP Foundation's Student Futures Commission. We'll consider developments in regulatory regimes for access, diversity and equality. We'll have a wealth of new insight to share from our own research with students and higher education professionals and leaders. And we'll think through how engaging with students' lived experience can transform strategy, policy and delivery and we'll consider what students are experiencing and saying about harassment and discrimination and where the boundaries are between security and freedom. All of that, lots more. The Secret Life of Students, London, February the 15th. To find out more and book tickets, go right now to wonky.com forward slash events.
1: Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? And here to set this week's correlation question live is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan.
3: Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that's waiting for the publication of Sue Gray's report before coming to any firm conclusions. This week's question is deceptively simple. Do providers that get more of their funding from research activity employ more of their academic staff on research-only contracts? So we're looking at the proportion of institutional funding that comes from research activity and the proportion of academic staff that are on research-only contracts. Does it correlate?
2: Oh, To be honest, I haven't got a clue and um, I'm just trying to guess whether the answer is as you would expect it to be or whether it's one of those ones where that's too obvious and it's the other way around. Um, So I will vote for yes it does correlate
0: Well I'm going to come in as a complete guess as well here I, I don't think uh, from my, my experience of higher education in, in the UK I don't think that any sensible policy will naturally take hold uh, organically so let's say it doesn't
3: That's entirely impeccable logic Ben it's also wrong um, interestingly, the, uh, the answer is yes, R-squared is 0.78, uh, so that's a very strong uh, correlation. Indeed so, yes. Uh, data is from the last complete year um, of provider releases from HESA, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it.
1: And finally, University's Minister Michelle Donnan has called for the end of use of non-disclosure agreements um, in sexual harassment uh, cases. Ben, talk us through it. So yes,
0: this is uh, this was a report from earlier in the week. A letter written by the by the minister to VCs uh, asking them to sign up to a pledge that in cases of sexual misconduct, bullying, and other forms of harassment, that uh, they would no longer, or that they would not use NDAs in order to silence um, victims and, and survivors of those. Um, the there was a lot of media coverage on this and it has played, I think, very, very well for for the Minister. And I think that whenever we had a conversation with it inside uh, USI here, it sparked um, a lot of conversation. And in fact, there have been similar things in in, in Ireland. And I look forward to talking about those in a few minutes.
1: So this is one of these interventions, isn't it, where... It, it, it- I think most people can agree that it, it looks very bad for, for universities and um it kind of is very bad on a, on a, on a, on a moral level and and it seems to me Mary maybe there's been a kind of disconnect between kind of decisions that universities have taken over the years and um you know i you can sort of imagine legal departments pushing pushing these things through and, and it not ever having been discussed at a senior level about kind of the instit- institutional policy about this and then before we know it it's it's started a kind of it started a much wider debate is, is it right then for the minister to to get involved with this
2: um yeah i think this is a really important um area you know not least because sexual misconduct, bullying, and so on, is is so much um, in the kind of public consciousness, rightly, um, at the moment. I think my impression is that NDAs, where they're used, are very often used to hide not, not so much the outcomes or the incidents, but really poor process in universities. You know, I get the impression that universities probably haven't put enough effort into doing their investigations and the work they need to do when a complaint's made really well so that victims are protected and heard, that perpetrators are dealt with, and also that they're done quickly. You know, you hear of these cases that drag on for months and and, and even years and often handled by people who probably haven't got adequate knowledge and training, you know, that might end up in the kind of HR department or something. Um, So amongst other things, I think if this improves how universities design and execute their processes around these kind of complaints um you know particularly sexual harassment and and violence and so on and i think it's it's to be welcomed um that said you know it's never a good look for the sector is it when the minister has to tell us to get on with doing something that we should have been doing anyway
1: yeah yeah um indeed ben you you hinted at uh, at the the approach in Ireland. talk us through talk us through that
2: yeah,
0: just before I do that, though, I mean, the, the, I think the, the most common response to this has been whenever it's been discussed, is just how vile the idea is that somebody who has been um, who has been subjected to bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, but in, in some cases, sexual assault, and then has that offence compounded by being told that they're not allowed to, they're not allowed to talk about it, and they're not allowed to talk about their experience of the investigation, they're not allowed to talk about their experience of the the processes that existed, and I think that it's it's one of these things, as as you said, the kind of the legal departments will have kind of done this as a as a pro forma as a this is what we now have to do and nobody's given any thought to well listen is this a humane is this a logical is this an ethically sustainable uh, approach to take whenever somebody has has actually submitted a complaint that will have been painful for them to submit themselves so we looked into this in, inside here and i suppose the uh, anybody that i spoke to that their first response was really people people have actually done that they've actually used ndas well actually in ireland um uh a senator, a member of, a member of Unshanted Aaron, who used to be, not so long ago, the president of Trinity College Dublin Students' Union, um, submitted a question because she had been made aware of, uh, or she says that she's been made aware of, NDAs being used in Ireland. The response from that was very, very quick. The minister for um, the sector simply wrote to all the colleges and asked them, are you doing this? With the clear understanding that if you're doing this, stop it. They all came back and said, no, of course we don't do that. Uh, but the uh, senator in question says that that doesn't correlate with the information that she has from uh, from students who uh, students and staff who who have ex- experienced these things. And of course, that comes to the heart of the NDA, isn't it? One of the interesting things about the NDA is you're not supposed to discuss the fact that you've got an NDA. So it'll it's going to take some time for these cases uh, on both sides of the Irish Sea to kind of emerge and for people to understand exactly. Where are the campuses where NDAs have been used? and has therefore a false picture of how safe it is to study on a particular campus been painted? Because if some places are if some places have experienced significant numbers of cases and have used significant numbers of NDAs, students have deserved to know that it was a potentially unsafe place to study. Now obviously this will be a tiny number of places, we would hope, but
1: it's still chilling to think of so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything that's going on in uk he do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very, so thanks very much to mary ben dk and everyone at team wonky to help to make the show happen until next week stay wonky